Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Welcome to Home Education Matters and today I am joined by Diana Edwin and we are going to be discussing the Charlotte Mason approach and this is the second of a kind of two-parter looking at the Charlotte Mason approach and today we're going to be talking quite specifically about how you can take the the freedom and the approach of Charlotte Mason and then adapt it to fit with still doing GCSEs and jumping through the kind of GCSE hoops Uh, and in our first podcast there was a sense that it was a fabulous approach and very popular with home educators, but that perhaps once you get to 14, you know, it's kind of difficult to sort of reconcile the two things, reconcile the very the rigidity of GCSEs with the fluidity of the Charlotte Mason approach. So before we launch into that, first of all, thank you so much, Diana, for joining us. And do tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Well, so I came into the Charlotte Mason method really through a book, which I was given when my youngest was a baby. And I had the opportunity of reading through, um, it's one of the American classic books, Karen Andreola's book. It's called The Charlotte Mason Companion. And even though it was very old fashioned um, and very American and didn't seem kind of relevant to me, I loved the ideas in it. And there was something about it that just drew me in. And and, and I realized there was something quite magical about it that I really wanted to extract something from it for me. And so I persisted with um, just learning about this uh, method. And as we decided that our eldest was not enjoying preschool and so therefore wouldn't continue to go, um, I began to meet with other home educators in the area. And none of them were into Charlotte Mason. None of them had heard about her. So it was very much a little sort of private secret thing that I was just reading in the background and um, growing more and more excited about what this method could could offer to to my family, just just me and my kids, and apparently a whole bunch of people in America that I was never going to meet. So it was very, um, it was very personal to me. And so I was able to try things out, practice it, but I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. All I had were the blogs in America that that really just made me feel really um, inadequate, I suppose, in comparison. I didn't like have a massive basement that, you know, was full of books. And so it was always really hard to feel like I really want to do this, but I feel like I'm going to do it really badly because I'm not set up and I'm not in America and I don't have the support. Well, obviously, fast forward, you know, 12, 14 years, however long I've been doing it now, you know, I've got older teenagers and and we do have community. We do have people nearby. We do have support. Um, And that's why I'm here doing this is because I I don't want anyone else to feel like me. I don't want anyone else to feel like, oh, it's just me on my own and a whole load of people that are doing it much better than me. I want to be able to extract something beautiful for my family. Um, and so, yeah, that is what I have been been doing and pulling out lovely things and enjoying this journey of education with with my children. Um, and and we have loved it. And that's that's why I keep ranting on about it. And I dare say I will long after they've left home. It's one of those things, isn't it, that once you find an approach, even if it's, it's just home education generally, that you tend to become a bit of an advocate for it. 
you mentioned that you started very very soon with Charlotte Mason so I'm guessing that you home educated all your children all the way through have you? Yes yes they've never been to school um, so my eldest is now facing college and has done interviews and, and they're quite perplexed what do you mean you've never been to school? <laughs> Most people have done a little bit of school no never been to school uh, yeah so and, and really I have stuck with Charlotte Mason right, right from the start which again is probably very unusual um, I had an aunt and uncle um, in America. It, she was the lady who gave me the book. And she said, if I had my time over again, I wouldn't get sucked into the expensive curriculum. I wouldn't spend hundreds of pounds on, you know, ready-made curriculum in a box type thing that uh, appears twice a year and it's all done for you. She said, I would just stick with the Charlotte Mason method. And that is what I have done. And you've got no regrets about no no? regrets. No, quite the opposite, um, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell me from the start, you mentioned that you saw it as a very American approach. And certainly, certainly a lot of the the blogs and the articles and things have a kind of American centric feel. What would you say is the main difference between the UK approach to Charlotte Mason and the US one? If you can, I know, obviously, everybody would do things slightly differently. But is there a sort of differentiation you can make? It, it does feel as though um, very much in America, the, the the bulk of the material that you can find online, and honestly, I don't know how these women do it. They're home educating or homeschooling like 10 children, and they're running a blog and like a business on the side. I, I've only got two and I've got enough to do, thank you very much, without, you know, spreading <laughs> everything all over, all over the internet. Um, they're super women, these people, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. Yeah. That's the first difference. Um, I'm not like that. Um, <laughs> the second difference is that many of them are Christian. And so for, for many of them, this is wrapped up in the, the, the identity of themselves as a Christian family, as a family of faith, and that everything is very deeply founded on that. Now, I am a Christian as well. That is important to me. And, and I can read and interpret kind of what other people are saying. Um, but it, it doesn't really it doesn't really fit over here. You know, we're much more of a multi-faith, multicultural community here. We've got many secular families who, who can't see beyond this religious terminology. And so, so one of the jobs that, that we're trying to do here in the UK is to interpret and to, to translate some of the, the vocabulary and the, it is early 20th century, it is, it is late Victorian um, wording and, and phrasing that, that just doesn't sit very easily on our um, you know, very tired brains when we're trying to listen to, you know, a tiny little audio book at the end of the day, we just need it to speak directly to us. And so it can be a bit difficult to, to get into that. Um, in the UK, we have we have just an amazing community. We have many Muslim families. Um, you know, they're going to take these methods and these values and interpret them for their own faith values. And that's really important to us as well in the UK that 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 no one is excluded from from this method just because they don't have the same Christian faith that Charlotte Mason had. So would you say that you're trying to extricate the religious aspect from the pedagogical approach? So, yeah, for many people, they can't pull them apart because it's we are holistic, aren't we? We are mothers and educators. And although, you know, I would uh, say, you know, we always try to be be a mother before anything else. That is the most important thing. Um, where the line stops between, well, am I just being a mother now? Am I just kind of doing kind of a, a Bible study thing? Because that's what I do as a mum anyway, whether or not they were at school. Or does this fall into like 
the educational category of no, we're going to do some religious studies. It's it's very blurred. We don't need to make those boundaries. Um, so for, for, for many families who have a faith base, they, they can't pull it out. They can't say, well, this is separate. Um, but obviously for families who don't have that faith base, then they're wanting still to look at character and values and morals and 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 good habits and those things are are they education or is that parenting as well we want to raise our children with 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 values about what it means to be you know a, a, a contributing adult to society whether that is um whether it's like the citizenship thing which that's what they'd call it in america looking at examples of of um either great or not great people and drawing kind of um ideas from that about was that a good thing to do should we be living our lives like that um you know just to to have that kind of character training in in our in our home ed that's interesting because my next question was going to be whether you you know why my next question was going to be why the Charlotte Mason approach is so popular with religious families. And would you say that it is because of this, in inverted commas, character training aspect, this kind of ethical um, seepage that goes on through the texts and through the approach? Yeah. I, so Charlotte Mason, her, one of her first principles is that children are born persons um, with capacity for many things, good things not so good things all of our capacities as as children she wants us as parents to help our children to develop those potentials and to to develop them into a strength which the child can then draw on she calls it you know developing it into a power if you have a power like a superpower um as you know you can talk about with your little kids if you've got a superpower you know how to use it you know how to control it you know when to hold back and refrain from using it or use it as appropriate and and we need to develop those things in in our children if we see these little seeds of wonderfulness and no adult has been a patient adult right from the start okay some people just say oh yeah i'm not a patient person and they write that off as a personality trait and say, I'm just not a patient person. And actually, patience isn't a personality trait. It's a character trait. You can learn to be a more patient person. <laughs> Ask me why I know this. Um, because <laughs> if, if, if you believe that you can't change and develop your character, those strengths that you want to have as an adult, then, then you're never going to do that with your children. And we're not trying to change their personality. We're going to look for their uniqueness. We're going to acknowledge them as born persons, which is inherently respectful of their unique sense of self. So we're not trying to overlay a whole load of expectations on them. But we are saying to them, I believe that you have the, you know, the ability to develop this characteristic as a strength for you which is going to serve you well into your adult life how many of us have got awful habits as adults I can't go to bed on time it's a terrible habit um Charlotte Mason's methods are intrinsically wrapped up with habits the formation of habits carefully chosen intentionally chosen not all thrust upon the child all at once but we just pick one thing we pick one thing and we work on that and we make that the focus of round about a half term 
And we said, you know what, we're going to we're going to practice this. We're going to we're going to develop a strength in you, which maybe you don't have much of at the moment. And then we're going to see where you, where you come. And, and, and at the end of, you know, six, eight weeks, then you tell me, have you got more strength in this? And, and so that's how we progress, not just through the academics, because we can't we can't build academics on a foundation which is all sort of wibbly wobbly. So, so we're nurturing them, we're nourishing them, we're growing them in character and strength. And then the academic work, that application to, to study and to pay attention, all of those habits we've worked on. So Charlotte Mason's first volume is talking about all of these lovely habits. You know, the, the habit of best effort for some children, like they already have that, like maybe they're a bit of a perfectionist. Okay, do you know what? We don't need to work on the habit of best effort because you've got that. Like you probably need to work on the habit of perseverance when things don't go right. Because if you're a perfectionist, that's what you're going to struggle with. So none of this is a blanket, you must do this. But it's opening up our resources as parents to say, how can I help my child grow and flourish in, in the best way? And which things might be useful for my child at this point? Um, so yeah, we kind of pick what we need as we see our children growing up. My next question then is, you have this focus on strengths and characteristics and developing those in the child. And so, for example, you might take a half term and focus on uh, developing patients and then all of your educational approach will be sort of working around that. So who decides on the ideal kind of strengths and characteristics? Is it the child? Is it you as the parent? Is it Charlotte Mason? So there's 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 many. I mean, I would say patience is sort of an ongoing thing um, that I've been working on in myself. I've chosen that for me. Um, I, you know, I'm very aware that I needed to, to work on that. Um, Charlotte Mason has got many many kind of ideas of of different sorts of of habits you can work on. There's there's various lists. Some of them are things like the habit of thinking, and that's a, that's a really interesting one. The habit of thinking, actually. That is a deliberate exercise and, and that comes with practice. So we could say, actually, I really want you to, to think about this. Are we just running along habitual lines or are we kind of stopping our habitual lines of thinking and trying to go in a different direction? And this kind of feeds into science as well. You know, are we are we just kind of seeing what we expect to see or are we stopping that automatic train of thought of like, oh, yeah, that's going to happen? And stopping saying, is this actually what's happening right now? So the habit of attention, of observation to actually what's happening. So the principles are there. Um, the habits may not come naturally to many of them. And so sometimes you might feel, yeah, my child isn't ready for this habit. So I'm, I'm not going to take anyone else's schedule of which habits should be put in and, and introduce them. For a child with ADHD, the habit of attention obviously is going to be incredibly difficult. But what do we want as a parent of a child with ADHD is we want their capacity for attention to be as strong as it possibly can be for our child. So, so that is going to be a focus, but we're not going to have the same expectation. So the end result is not going to be the same. So we're not looking at hitting certain goals or certain markers by a certain point. We're actually just looking at how we kind of provide this environment where we encourage our children in the things which they find really difficult. 
And you mentioned earlier about that one of the things you do is kind of interpret or modernize the Charlotte Mason approach. And I'm guessing there are some habits and characteristics that perhaps from to the modern eye, you might think, no, I don't know if we still need those. I don't know if humility or submission or those kind of things are in there. Maybe they're not. I don't yeah, know. Much obedience, about Mason. Yeah, obedience is mm. one which, yeah, that, that's a bit of a trigger nowadays, isn't it? You know, that's a word which <laughs> some people are going to kick off at. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, th- there is definitely a, an element of of needing to look at these values and say, are they my values? And, and are, are these habits things which I think are important for my children? And and. Charlotte Mason never intended any kind of program or something based on her work to be pressed onto parents willy-nilly without any kind of discernment. She gives us the choice and the responsibility and the freedom to choose what is right for our children. And that's that's really key. Okay. So that's a relief because I there were parts of me that were thinking we're all going to have these homogenized sort of children coming out with all the same habits. But I, I see that it's almost like a kind of menu. And then from within Absolutely. the menu, you and your child can can sort of look and think, actually, you know, I think that's a really important family family value. And so we're going to pursue that. So it's clear that it's rooted in a kind of holistic person centered approach where it's about um not about learning specific skills but it's about developing and forming a person Mm. so if my now let me let me go for this now because in the previous podcast that we did I didn't know much about Charlotte Mason then by the end of it I knew quite a lot about the Charlotte Mason approach so I'm going to have a go at telling you what I think it is and then you can correct me (laughs) and then after we've done that we can then move on to how you can take that approach and move it into exams so the Charlotte Mason approach from what I, when I very first went into the podcast, I thought it was living books and copywriting. That's what I thought it was. By the end of the podcast, the first podcast, I I realized that it was about laying out options for your child and they could then interact with those as they chose to, but you lay out options within a kind of remit that you that you kind of approve of as I know you're not, not going to like some of this terminology but so it's the idea that you maybe choose living books so you choose books that have a certain um that engage with the subject in a in a sort of like authentic and passionate way um but also have a certain inherent quality to perhaps to the writing and, and the approach to the subject but you would lay these out and the child would choose what they engage with and then the child would maybe read the book and then tell you about the book like tell you what they learned from the book so it's very much about the child's primary engagement with the source that's kind of what I took from it so how far off am I <laughs> I think that's really good I think that's that's a great summary you've definitely been listening <laughs> to, to the people that you're talking to um yes absolutely there are um there are boundaries and criteria that kind of we set in place that that, that as parents we're choosing the diet that we're feeding to our children in terms of the literature available to them and obviously we have the internet, um, you know, there's YouTube and Wikipedia and there's all sorts of other modern resources. Um, and, and still we would apply the same principles to those. I, I'm, we're still going to use YouTube to um, to watch a video on something, maybe. Um, so it's not just about digging out the old, you know, old books from. But I have plenty of these old, beautiful smelling books. Um mm-hmm 
so my children definitely don't judge a book by its cover because they know that sometimes those um, really boring, old, musty books are the best ones. Um, but I'm not against using the internet for our resources either. Is there such a thing then as living websites? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I would say um, people are a great resource. Experts in their field are an amazing resource. Anyone who has an interview with someone whether it's David Attenborough or, you know, or anybody else and gets excited about, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Bill Bryson, when he did his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, he went around the world meeting scientists, interviewing them, and then he writes about the conversations that he had and the things that he learned. That is a living book. You can't help get excited about science and about the work that's going on through hearing Bill narrate back tell back about the things that he learned when he went to all of these different places around the world. You know, he goes and meets a guy who lives in the middle of the outback in Australia. He's got a tiny little piddly telescope, but he's in the Southern Hemisphere. He's got a really dark sky. And um, he, he's really good at spotting supernovas or something. And this guy has like found more than anybody else in the whole scientific world combined. Um, and he just pushes it out on a little trolley out of his kitchen every night onto the veranda. Stories like that about about the human kind of ability to just do wonderful things with with very basic resources. Um, I love that. I love that about about reading about people. So for me, I get excited about um, innovation and about seeing what what, what humans can get up to. Um, so, yeah, living websites. I don't know, because websites can be a bit blah, can't they? But people, I can get excited about that. So absolutely, modern people would be okay. on my list. <laughs> <laughs> so if the Charlotte Mason approach is very much about allowing your child to choose what they engage with within your dietary choice, and then they engage with the stories that you know stories from people books think that kind of thing so when i was speaking to amanda in the previous podcast we spoke a little bit about exams and and i said you know how does that you know how does that work because it feels very it feels a very different approach to the approach that i've taken with my children through their gcse's not because i wanted to but because i felt that we had to because there're really so many hoops to jump through when you do gcse's and she pretty much said uh, although I'm paraphrasing, but she pretty much said there's lots of other options other than GCSEs. Now, one reason I wanted to talk to you today is because there will be people who love the Charlotte Mason approach, and maybe they do it with their six and seven and eight year old, and they think, okay, yeah, but obviously we're going to have to scrap that once we get to GCSEs. And to be honest, I would probably nod and go, yeah, you probably are going to have to do that, right? <laughs> so you're here today to tell me that I'm wrong and that actually you can just keep this approach going all the way through GCSEs and get GCSE results at the end of it. And I'm slightly staggered by this. So please <laughs> tell me, <laughs> please tell me how you can do this. Yeah, absolutely. So it has been... Um... Again, a big journey for me because I, I am not living in a community where there are lots and lots of people around me doing it. So again, this has been like the beginning of my journey. This has been me going, do you know what? I really want to do this and I'm going to find a way. Um, and so my background um, in engineering, so the sciences are my thing. It meant that I was able to start looking at the sciences, you know, particularly rather than the humanities, and to start looking at how we could do science um, in a continuing way to what we've been doing before. Now, the thing about science 
is that um, it, within the Charlotte Mason method, we start with nature study because nature is all around us. And because we can look at things and observe things and, and, and draw things. And, and Charlotte Mason had this thing called an object lesson where she would just plonk something down and, and we, they would look at it and discuss it and find out things about it. It's very practical. It's very hands-on. I, I love that about the Charlotte Mason method. And as the children get older, we move from nature study into practical science and we do a lot of practical science. Um, now, sometimes the books that we use, um, so I might just find, I've got a whole stack of books here. If you get like um, a book, which is just like, this is a kitchen science book. Okay. And it's got a whole load of experiments in it um, on different topics, life science. It's got physics, it's got chemistry. And in here are just some really fun things to do. And if you've got younger children, you can just do the fun things if you wanted to. If you've got a wide age range of children, then the young ones can still have fun with these. The thing about a book like this, though, is that they'll just have a little thing, little sort of section saying the science behind the fun. OK, and that is sort of their almost as an afterthought of, oh, yeah, by the way, this is what this is all about. This is why this works. And we try and turn that on its head. So we try to find a book which will take us on a journey of under, of, of deep delving deep into a subject. Quite often I use a historical um, narrative of whether it's biology or physics or whatever it is. And we start at the beginning of history. What did we know? What did we know about the naturally occurring elements? Because all of that time ago, chemistry didn't exist. We just knew about gold and silver and tin and lead and copper. And th those things we knew about because they were naturally occurring. And, and then what happened? Well, then, then we learned how to heat up rock and, and extract metals. So we learned about smelting and getting iron. My goodness, what, what, a, what a journey that was to, to begin to then find iron and, and find things to do with it. And we can take that story and we can read about the story of chemistry through the years and we can develop each of kind of those points. And then if I've got a whole stack of books like this, that I can reference, I can say, do you know what? We can do an experiment about that. Would you like to smelt some pewter? We've got a campfire. We can buy some pewter. We're going to heat it up. We're going to make some little plasticine um, kind of molds. And we're going to smelt our own little axes. Let's do that. So for me, the fun experiments have to fit into a bigger narrative for, for me, which takes the children through the story of chemistry or whatever it is that builds on that idea that um, that we introduce ideas in an order that makes sense and that takes them kind of on a on a learning journey. Um, so there are many books. I love the Janice Van Cleve books, again, just full of experiments. Say that name again, Janice Van Cleve. Janice Van Cleve. Um, this is the kind of thing that in America you'd use for like the school science fair. I'm sure like you must have seen that on, on American TV shows. You know, if they're doing a science fair, they do one big science project um, and they do a great big, I don't know, whatever, display about it. A book like this will have lots of different experiments in, um, which may or may not have any kind of connection. And what I do is like once a term, I'll go to a coffee shop with my book, which I've chosen to read, um, which might be something like this, The Mystery of the Periodic Table. This is a book about the, the story of chemistry through the years. And then I'm going to reference, I'd have the chemistry experiment book. 
and I'm going to look through my chemistry experiment book and go, oh, right, that one would fit in here and that one would fit in here. So then as we read our living book, which is just either me reading aloud or them reading one chapter at a time, then I can say, oh, you finished chapter two. Tell me about that. And they'll tell me what's in chapter two. And I'll say, I've got an experiment ready. Should we try that? And then we can try it and we can jump in to experiencing the, the, the subject ourselves. There's something magical about um, reading about Galileo. Um, so can I read to you just quickly? Read away. <laughs> Galileo entered the University of Pisa in 1581 to study medicine. Now, in those days, scholars held in high regard the confident writings of Aristotle and other Greeks who lived almost 2000 years earlier. People in the 1500s turned to ancient books as the final authority on scientific matters. They saw no reason to question Aristotle's books or test his statements. During his first year at university, though, Galileo discovered an important principle that ancient Greeks had completely overlooked. Students at Pisa began their day by going to chapel. One morning, Galileo knelt and said his prayers in the dark chapel, and he got up and watched a lamplighter light the candles in a lamp which was hanging 30 feet down from the high ceiling. Lighting the candles caused the lamp to move in a slow back and forth motion. As its motion died down, it seemed to take as long to make one small swing as one large one. Galileo timed the chandelier swing with his pulse. Galileo went back to his room to try other pendulums, and his experiments showed that the time for a complete swing was the same whether the arc was a small or a large one. Galileo's discovery is now known as the, as the principle of the pendulum. A principle is a law of science. And in this case, Galileo had found that two pendulums of the same length would swing at the same rate, regardless of how wide or shallow their arcs. Only by changing one thing could we change the time needed to make the arc, to make the lamp swing. Now I'm gonna stop there and I'm gonna say, right, we're gonna try it. Here we go, I've got some string. I'm not necessarily gonna have a candle at the end of it, but I'm gonna bung something on the end of it. Right, let's time it. Was he right? Had he found something new? Let's do that experiment. And now I've deliberately not said what this other change was that is needed to, to alter the length of the time of the swing. So we're gonna find that out. What, what I don't like about teaching nowadays is that quite often they start off with the learning objectives, don't they? They're like, yeah, it's saying, like spoilers. They're it is, tell you totally. It's the punchline of the joke and you haven't even had, you haven't even had any of the preamble. I'm not gonna give them the punchline. It's like, we're gonna find out. What is that one change that is needed? We're now going to experiment and find out what that is. So I'm going to use a story like that, because then the next time it's like, right, what, was, what was Galileo mucking about with last week? Can you remember? And if they can remember the story of Galileo and his experiment, then that is helping them. That's giving them a hook to remember what they studied and what it was all about. And that's what I find really powerful is the power of, of story to remember things and and that's what I do all the way through GCSE course so I'm doing GCSE physics at the moment um with my second child so obviously I've done it once already 
Um, and we're doing all sorts of, of experiments like that, where we're reading about the scientists and what, what they have, you know, what their journey to discovery. And then it's like, right, let's give it a go. Let's let's make a motor. Here we go. Got some magnets, got some wire. Off we go. So first things first, I will be putting the links for all these books down in the session notes. And actually what I'll do is I'll put them in our Facebook group so that if anyone listening is like, that's a great story, I want to buy that book, then I'll make sure that we put the the links um, for all these books in the Facebook group in because in our Facebook group we have a post for each podcast in which our guest comes on and we can put the links and things like that but my second thing I'd like to say is I love that approach half of me thought that sounds fabulous like what a great way to hook children into to learning something because there's no way that any child in the world would not remember the pendulum story because it's so well told the other half of me thought, you know, it's a real shame that the chemistry GCSE doesn't ask anything about Galileo or pendulums. <laughs> and now you see, so my question there is, where does the syllabus come into this? Because obviously, IGCSE chemistry, for example, asks specific topics. Now, do you, I'm guessing you don't approach each topic and learn it, that you actually learn the whole subject in a much broader way and then hope hope it comes up on the paper uh no so very much i will do um the, the key stage three science if if anyone has not done that yet if anyone's worried about kind of secondary school science basically key stage three science for those first three first first three years of secondary school are essentially all of the gcse curriculum but just in less detail so students at school will get one run through pretty much all of the topics which are covered at GCSE, but they don't need to know so much. It's not, you know, it's not so complicated. There's not great big calculations or things to do. Then when you get to GCSE, then the teachers can say, hey, you know this thing that we were learning about forces or simple machines or something? Well, now we're going to learn a little bit more about how they work. We're going to actually do some more calculations. We're going to be clearer on our units and what we're measuring. We'll do some more experiments. Um, so so that's what I've done as well with my children. We've had two basically rotations through um, where the first one is we can go off in a number of different directions. Actually, pendulums, I think, are covered in key stage three rather than GCSE. So that would be something which would feed in very well to, to that kind of um, level. What I do, though, is I will get something like a core practical book. Um, so for the GCSE syllabus that I'm studying, there's a set of core practicals that every child in school would be covering these practical experiments. And so I'm going to use that as my guide to um, to say, OK, these are the experiments that they would do at school. So I'm going to make sure that we do cover those. Anything else is just bonus material, making it more interesting. You know, it's key stage three, maybe just like slightly simplified. Um, like in physics, there's not much on static electricity. There's like a tiny little bit if you're doing the full um, physics GCSE as opposed to double science, but static electricity. I mean, that's a brilliant one to do. If you've got like a wide age range of kids, it's like brilliant, blow up some balloons and send the young ones around the house to write a list of five things that this balloon will stick to, you know, once you've, they've rubbed it on their hair. So, so with a wide age range, you want to try and find things which are going to meet a, a number of your children's kind of learning um, ages and stages. Um, but then for the, for the GCSE itself, then I am very much using a textbook to help me target where we spend our time and where we where I invest in 
giving them a really solid grounding in it. That doesn't mean that I exclusively restrict myself to that, because if we're reading an interesting book, I'm not just going to skip over the chapter that's not included in the GCSE course. We're going to do that as well. But I will know and make a note of the fact that this isn't core for me. What about the bits of the syllabus that don't have a practical experiment based around it? How do you then approach those? And and actually from that, we, I could ask you my next question, which is that what about subjects like, for example, um, radioactivity? We didn't do no, that. No, <laughs> unfortunately, that would be fun. Yeah, we um, watched that on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm actually thinking of things like economics and religious studies uh sociology those kind of subjects where you there aren't actually experiments to hook into every topic in the exam and of course there are obviously topics in chemistry and physics and biology that don't have practicals related to it so how do you then approach those bits of the syllabus well for something like that so we've used um so for economics we've not done that as a gcse course but we've done it as one of our extracurricular sort of our beyond GCSE courses. Um, So we've studied economics, politics, philosophy, a whole load of other things that we've just not chosen to sit the GCSE in um, because I have scientists in the house, um, funnily enough. Um, But so we will use a living book like Naked Economics is is a great book. Um, And as we go through a book like that, then if I've got my GCSE syllabus, then I can be looking and seeing like this chapter is actually kind of dealing with this topic. A lot of GCSE resources now um, online, you can find topic-based kind of sets of questions. So for each topic, so if I'm looking at carbon chemistry, I can go and I can find a booklet with like a whole of, of exam questions on that topic. So we can read a section of a book and go, right, can we answer some of these questions? Have we found out the answers to some of these questions? Or do we need to do kind of more study? I'm not saying I never use a textbook, of course. Textbook is really, really useful, but it's not usually going to be the first way in, but it can fill the gaps. And, you know, there are good textbooks out there. Um, So I like the books called Physics for You, Biology for You, Chemistry for You, because they actually explain things in in here and they will start um, a topic by saying by giving you a little experiment. Um, so there's lots and lots of experiments in here. Okay, we're going to use a tray full of marbles to talk about molecules and how they move kind of around each other. Right, get a tray, get some marbles. That's the kind of thing that I can prepare ahead of time. Um, I've jumped back to science again, but my textbook... You have. <laughs> I know, but my choice of textbook is really important to me. Um, there are other textbooks. There was one which I got very cross at um, because it just said um, it rearranged a formula not explaining how, drawing information from two other formulas. This was like the, um, the, the speed of a falling object um, just under the, the influence of gravity. And it said, by the way, here's another formula that you need to know how to use in the exam. And they didn't explain it at all. Well, that's where I blow my top because, you know, there, there are other textbooks which show how you get to that formula. And that's what I want for, for my guides. Some subjects, for example, they just don't have many textbooks. And we would take economics. When my son sat the GCSE, there actually wasn't a textbook for his exam board. So he had to use like a CDP generic one. And the same thing, if you take environmental management, there's one textbook and it's notoriously dull. Um, yeah, no, religious two, studies. We've got both of them. So uh, yeah. And astronomy. Astronomy is a classic example of a great subject that they've made very boring with the textbooks, all of them, because we bought all three and they're all boring. Um, <laughs> and religious studies, a fascinating subject that they've made boring with textbooks. So my question, I suppose, then is for something like astronomy 
which I know is a bit of a niche one. Okay, let's go for environmental management because it's much less niche. The textbook is terribly dull. Yeah. There's not a lot of living books on it because obviously it's a very modern, a lot, lot of the topics are very modern. And so would you be looking at newspapers then or YouTube videos? How would you be accessing that kind of the syllabus content? Right. Well, my daughter's read quite a few books. Um, so, for example, Rachel Carson's The Sea, um, the sea Around Us. Um, that's all about, obviously, the oceans and the conservation of that. Lots of David Attenborough, um, lots of David Attenborough feeds into environmental, environmental management really well. Um, we did, um, when they were younger, we, we did a, a thing on geology. And there's a lovely um, American lady called Ellen J. McHenry. And her website has got some amazing resources, um, which are all very kind of living narratives of like, we're going to dig into rocks and dirt. And that is a brilliant um, PDF. You can download it. And that goes into geology, goes into soil science. It covers like a whole load more. It's probably like A-level geology standard, I would say. Um having looked at like the content of it. So we haven't used all of the resource, but I've obviously then matched it up to what we need to know for the environmental management. And we've used that as our main resource. So we've learned about the different minerals. We've, you know, lots of, um, the, the, the lots of lovely pictures and things in there and we've collected rocks and yeah, we've gone a whole load further probably than we needed to do for the geology section of, of EM. Um, Sometimes it's just really nice to get other books. This is called Yorkshire Rock. And it's a, it's a lovely, lovely book. And it's just got loads of diagrams in here about the, like the layers, because you need to know when you're looking at things like earthquakes, you need to know about how the tectonic plates work and the, the disaster, natural disasters that kind of come out of all of this. And so a book like this, which has got, you can kind of read it through and study. Um, it's got a lot about, you know, the ocean floor as well. And so sedimentary rocks and how they're laid down. There are, there are books out there. I know there are and because I use them, but it's really hard to communicate that to, to the wider community. Um, we've got a Charlotte Mason community here in the UK. Um, we've got a Facebook group. We've got groups in there where we're, we're trying to collate these the best like, books that we can find on each of these subjects. And that's one of the things that I'm passionate about is sharing kind of what I've learned on this journey of taking my children through things like environmental management, using a lot of living books and how that has really enriched the fact that, yeah, there is a textbook. Yeah, it is pretty boring. Um, we really haven't used that a lot. I use it. I'm the parent. I'm trying to figure out, okay, right, we need to know about this. We need to know about that. I'm trying to understand the scope of the study that my child needs to do. And then I'm trying to find ways that we can do that without sitting them down and saying, right, you need to sit and read this really boring chapter and then answer the questions at the end of the book. I mean, that's perfect because that does slightly answer my next question, which is that it feels like as an approach, it's quite effort heavy. So you would need to sort of really do a lot of research about which books um, sort of match up to different bits of the curriculum. But I'm, I get the impression that in your Facebook group, that's something that maybe has been kind of done in advance. So that helps a little bit. But my next question, I suppose, would then be that I think I'm getting a sense of how it works. So you look at the syllabus as a parent and then you think, OK, like, how can I engage my child with this in a way that involves really good books with stories that that properly engage them and then you go out and you buy six seven eight books depending on which bit of the syllabus you're in now I suppose my question to you would be it sounds like it's a expensive b 
kind of fiddly <laughs> and and see very time and effort heavy from the parent when really you could buy a textbook for 15 pounds covers the two years sit your child down and say I'm sorry buddy we can do the Charlotte Mason stuff you know around like for the whole rest of the day but for two hours you need to just be reading this textbook please and answering the question so I am what I considered to be an efficient home educator which means that unfortunately as far as I'm concerned I want to get it done and get it done efficiently and quickly and with as least pain as possible and that to me is we can have as much fun as you want the rest of the time but I want you to do one hour sitting down with a textbook so I know you've ticked it off so your approach is very different to this so what would you say to, to this idea that it sounds quite ineffective and a little bit fiddly yeah, I, I get it. I absolutely, you know, the need to be pragmatic and to be practical about it. One of the things that we do within our community is that we 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 sell on and we share books. Um, I've got a friend that I've been doing chemistry and environmental management with. So to, as again, as a family, we've shared the preparation of that. So, you know, we've got our children together. And so I've done like two chemistry experiments at kind of different levels and then so we've split the children half and half. So we do sort of one GCSE focused and then one for the younger children. She's doing one, you know, on EM or whatever it is. And then we swap the children over. So if you can get a small group of families together, then you can kind of share the load there. But yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the books are an investment, um, but we sell them on. And obviously, if we find books that, that are that are great you know we're petitioning our local libraries to get them in that we've got some amazing um people who just really form amazing connections with the local libraries or the county libraries and say please can we get this in our county and then you're just paying a reservation fee or or sometimes you can do that for free as a home educator um to get those books into circulation um one of the things that i'm working on at the moment is obviously producing guides to to share everything that i've done for the syllabuses that i've done so you know that's that's one of my projects this summer is is to produce these so that's um i i'm very aware that i've done a lot of the hard work to um to get something sorted um to step us through but my list is not going to be the exhaustive definitive guide list it's just going to be a well look these work these work for now um so if you can find these books great if you find a book that does a similar job fab use that instead um books have been um something which obviously I have invested in over the year you can see the bookshelf behind me can't you um but I, I lend them out quite a lot, you know, and that's really important to me as well, that as local communities, we share our resources. Um, so, yeah, we want to we want to improve the effectiveness and the availability of this. We, um, you know, we want to make sure that this isn't an elite thing that only people who've got hundreds of pounds to spend can do. And actually, I would argue that most people are doing distance learning courses are spending hundreds of pounds um, on, you know, buying a course for their child um, for a GCSE because it's overwhelming it's it it feels like it's a, a lot of work and we want to make that more accessible we want to say look you can do it at home and it might cost you 50 pounds as opposed to 150 pounds in books but you can sell the textbook back on again so you can get your 15 quid back um, and then then you've got these other lovely books which again you can either keep for your next children or you can you can sell them on as well um yeah it it is one of the things that i know will put some people off is is the need to invest in books but i mean i would argue we invest in our children in so many different ways don't we 
and and it's just a matter of where do we put that money you know we each have to make that choice whether we're going to buy organic fruit and vegetables or whether we're going to send them off to kind of music classes because they're incredibly talented in that area you know we want to develop them um and and see where where their interests lie and if if this is something which is really going to open up their futures then i'm gonna i am going to invest in it if i if i possibly can what about the efficiency of time because one thing i mean I think I already know the the response, but so my guess would be that I would say, you know, why would I sit my child down to read multiple books about rocks, even if they are really fun and engaging, when I could she could watch a twenty minute YouTube video and she will remember it and learn it, right? So what like, and then we got the whole rest of the day free to do like other fun stuff to read books, like really good books, but that aren't about rocks, for example. <laughs> so why would she spend like? multiple multiple hours reading about rocks when she could watch a 10 minute youtube video and i'm guessing you would say that it's about the process of learning rather than the outcome would you well i would say that actually we wouldn't spend a whole morning reading about rocks you know uh, the things that that i'm showing you our lessons are very short the charlotte mason um method keeps lessons very very short so even for a teenager we're only ever going to spend 45 minutes on one subject and then that's it we switch to something completely different um, so our study into rocks um, that we took like a half term. And if you look at like the the, the EM um, guide, the different chapters that you've got, you know, if you spend about half term on each one, you're kind of knocking through it in, you know, in like 18 months to a couple of years, depending on sort of how quickly you move through those chapters. Um, a lot of the, the way that people do GCSEs now is to kind of write from September, through till March, there we go, we're going to blast in six months through the entire course book, and then we're going to do the exam in May, done, forget it, move on to the next one. That is absolutely not my approach. We have been building up and building up and building up our um, learning in all of these areas. We're going off into, you know, we're probably reading 35, 40 books a week, but we're reading one chapter from that book a week. So we are going in so many different directions, but they all have post-it notes in them. So they'll have post-it notes with like the day of the week or which child it is. Um, so they've just got their, their place marked. And it's like, right, open it up, read the next chapter, tell me all about it. There's minimal effort involved in that. Once I've picked everything, once I've planned and found the resources, it's open and go. It, there's no lesson planning involved. It's like, we'll read the next, next chapter and let's see where, where that takes us. So it's very simple in that sense. I've not got a great big kind of, oh, I need to do this and do that. And, you know, there's the lesson planning is as simple as once I've once I found my books. So it's quite old school in a way, in as much as, and I don't mean this in a bad way, in as much as when I was at school, for example, we had pretty good books and every lesson we had a, our books in our desk and we would lift out our book and we would carry on with wherever we were in the book in the last lesson and we kind of plodded through not in a bad way but we plodded through gradually through the syllabus now I get the impression from you that that's the approach you take that you study a subject over a long period of time like six seven years you know and that then at the end of it when they're 16 they take all their exams in one summer do they Oh no 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 we we have we have taken them when they're ready for them so I I have staggered them very much um but I didn't want to start too early because I wanted us to enjoy that breadth of a secondary school curriculum which I remember loving at school a non-exam focused 
um, ability to pick up our ologies, you know, yeah, geology, meteorology. We spent a, a, a term um, as our special science topic. We picked clouds. We did like a term studying clouds. We used the wonderful cloud spotters guide, um, which I was reading aloud from because some of it's not suitable for young ears. But um, the book is fabulous. It's, it's 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 a really great book. And we just go out and just lie up and look at the sky. This was half an hour once a week. I'm not saying we're spending an entire term on it, but um, as in all of our time. But that was our special study for that term. And now. I can still see my children looking out of the car window and taking a picture of a beautiful cloud formation because we spent that time with it half an hour once a week for a term. That was that was all we needed. They've done this. They did a study once where they got two families to read a book. And for one family, they read one chapter a day for 12 days. And the other family, they read one chapter a week for 12 weeks. And then a year later, they asked the families what they remembered from that book. Which family do you think had the better retention of what what happened in that book? Obviously, it was the family that spent 12 weeks with this book. They didn't spend any longer on the book. It wasn't more study. They just spread it out over a longer length of time. And so, you know, my approach is the same for GCSE. I don't want to bash it through in six months and then forget everything that I learned. I want to spend years in studying about chemistry in lots of different ways non-exam focused because that's just that is that's not great um that's just the hoop we've got to jump through at the end we're going to do chemistry in so many different ways and then when we come to okay we're going to do a GCSE in chemistry so now we are going to learn okay how we answer these specific questions we've got all of that background to draw on all of that experience like do you remember when we did that experiment and we were like boiling down the salt in the kitchen to, to, to boil off the water and try and find the salt that we'd um, dissolved in this solution. Do you remember when we did that and we almost burnt the saucepan dry? There's that shared experience that has grown over the years of you just spending, yeah, 45 minutes once a week, chemistry. There we go. But over the course of time, that really builds up to a big body of, of, of knowledge um, that the children can then draw on when they do the GCSE. I mean, it sounds to me very much like it's an approach that favours a kind of lifelong learning and a lifelong love of learning and an understanding of how things fit into the world around you rather than a kind of efficient sort of um, rampaging through the syllabus. Yeah, this is this is not about the exams are not the be all and end all. They're, they're not the highlight. Um, the, the learning has been the highlight, not the GCSE grade. What about subjects that you feel less confident in personally? Because obviously you talk about science a lot and you're obviously very happy with that. Now, for me, I would find science quite challenging, but anything to do with, you know, English or humanities, I would really revel in. So what about you? I mean, there must be subjects that you thought, I really don't know enough about this in order to really sort of engage with the children with it. Yeah, so I felt I felt a bit out of my depth with environmental management, I have to say, because um that that wasn't my field at all. Physics and chemistry, yeah, fine. Biology, geology, geography, ah, uh, not so much. Um, so so that was um an area where I I teamed up with a friend um and we did it together. And that's um that's just been so wonderful for me to have that support of another parent going, No, it's okay, look, because you can do this and hey, how about this? And and so, you know, 
we are doing this in community and I do want to, 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 to help people who don't feel confident about science. That's why I'm talking about it because, um, yeah, I, I want to help other people who don't love this like I do um, to give it a go. We are going to learn. We are going to get a second education, to be honest. If we're doing a Charlotte Mason education with our children, I have now benefited from a second education, from having done it with my guys. It's not the kind of thing where you say, well, you go off and, and do your thing and, and I don't want to know about it um, because I, I listen to their narrations. I listen to them telling me about what they've learned. I read what they've what they've written. I love reading about them, explaining about things that I don't understand, <laughs> like DNA and RNA. And it's like, oh, my goodness, you've written all this stuff. Brilliant. Um, I don't always know more than they do at GCSE level. And, and that's OK. What I do know is I know how to answer from the mark schemes. I know how to use a mark scheme to look at what they've said and to see if what they've said is getting marks on the mark scheme. And I can say, oh, OK, so apparently what you've said isn't going to get a mark. Apparently you need to say this. And they'll go, oh, OK, right, fine. And, and they learn it better. They are now I, I wouldn't get the grades that they're getting if I sat the GCSEs now. Um, not for all of the subjects at all, especially the ones that I'm really dodgy on. Um, but as I say, I've got together with other people who can help me. Um, there are people like the amazing Cat Patrick Streaming Spires courses, which are all Charlotte Mason based GCSE level courses that, that that you could do, which has kind of taken like taken the whole responsibility off you. Um, and so you can completely outsource it if you want. But I like the idea of just gathering a few friends together and saying, hey, do you do you love history? Because, you know, <clears throat> I could do with a bit of a boost here. Um, and we're going to be each other's cheerleaders and mentors aren't we and we're going to help each other along the way and that's really what I, where I think the home ed ethos um we need to celebrate that we need to still talk about that and encourage that amongst our community that we're not just doing it on our own we don't have to be the teacher that knows everything about everything um, I'll move on to community in a moment but one quick question I wanted to ask you is about neurodiverse children or, or children who just don't and won't learn from books I'm guessing there you would apply exactly the same techniques but to documentaries and things like that absolutely yeah audiobooks um you know we've used a lot of audiobooks um for, for one of my children who, who really learns very well using that method so yeah that there are many different ways of doing it actually I found um that uh just kind of doing it with your child quite often is the best way just to take some of that demand that pressure off them it's like, well, do you know what? I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this thing, and I, I'm gonna see what I've learned now. My favourite phrase is, "I never knew that," and then I complete the sentence. I never knew that, and I genuinely, I'm not making it up. Like I genuinely didn't know that thing. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities to sh demonstrate to your child that I'm learning this as well, or I found this bit really interesting. Which bit did you find interesting? because they might come in with something completely different they might be taking something completely different from it um when i when i, I run my computer science classes and i have many many neurodiverse children in that sometimes the parents come too and they take part in it as well and they are just coaching and mentoring and, and learning with their child um and that really helps as well to understand how to study um how to learn things how to try and do the things I've asked to do them to do you know in the week to then be ready for the next week how do you do computer science from a Charlotte Mason approach that feels counterintuitive 
Well, um, I am the living person, aren't I? I, I am. I am. I am the resource. <laughs> I'm a living person too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am the resource. So I'm not. I'm not using the textbook as my main resource. I am taking them through a journey of, hey, right, numbers. Right, what are we doing with these numbers? Okay, we, we're we're going to make a thing now. We're going to we're going to make a little flat chart. I do lots of um, cutting and sticking as well because I find that's that's quite useful. So if I introduce binary, I'm not going to say right. Our learning objectives for today are learning binary and converting from binary to decimal. I'm not going to say that at the start. I'm going to say, hey, who wants to see a magic trick? And I do this magic trick and I show different cards and I say, right, pick a number and I'm going to show you a card. Is your card, is your number on this card? And I'm going to show them each one. And I go, yes, it's on that card. Yeah, no, it's not on that card. There's a number of numbers on there. And then I can say at the end, oh, you pick the number 12. And they're like, wow, how did you do that? It's like, oh, you're going to find out how to do this trick too. That's how I teach binary. So it's not about just reading, oh, binary, here we go, ones and zeros. I try and make it interesting and exciting and giving them the opportunity to sit there and go, what's going on here? Because that's the habit of thinking, isn't it? Not just being told what to think, but they get the opportunity to sit there and go, what's that all about? I just had to teach this really boring lesson about the two different types of software system software and application software okay if that was and i've got resources that for teachers like i download and i see what teachers use and they'll have a screen saying you know right here's system software here's application software oh my goodness do you even I want know to i'm listen? slightly glazing over i already. know of course you're glazing <laughs> over i'm glazing over and i love this subject <laughs> so instead i've done it right software does anyone know any names of any software that you've got on your phone on your pc and they start coming up with names and i draw a line on on my whiteboard and i put all of the ones they're picking up on one side or the other and all of the names that they're coming up with go on one side of my board and i'm like hey guys you need to try and find something that's on the other side of my board here come on keep going keep guessing keep guessing to see if they can think of anything that falls into the system software which is obviously the really boring stuff that you assume is part of your operating system but kind of isn't so i'm gonna i want them to sit there and go oh what's she on about i can't right i need to think i need to think i need to try and guess something else like what do i know looking at my phone right what other what other software have i got on here i want them to think about it because then you know when i say at the end okay so this all of this stuff that was really fun and exciting these are your apps that's great this stuff that you couldn't think about you couldn't name anything and it's actually really boring and not interesting and you're not going to load your disk repair app just to have fun with it that is system software so now you know the difference the fun stuff the boring stuff great and now they remember the difference between the two and then they're not going to get them mixed up hooking them into the learning yeah, yeah. you're like the bill bryson of computer science <laughs> what a compliment <laughs> So you mentioned how important community is. So can you tell our listeners if they're thinking, yes, I'm energized by this, I am in like both feet, where can they go? Like, what groups can they join um, to feel that they've got that support around them that you maybe didn't feel when you very first started? Well, so I'm I'm one of the uh, the people behind the Charlotte Mason Conversations UK Facebook group. Um, and that is a group, um, Leah Bowden kind of runs it. Um, there's a number of us who have been doing over the years lots of Facebook lives um, especially through lockdown we were doing live videos talking about how do we teach geography 
How do we teach history? How do we do map drill? And there's lots of videos in that um, Facebook group. So loads of resources in there that you can watch a video of someone like me rabbiting on about this is how you do it. So there's lots of, of, of material in there to encourage you. Then we have um, kind of local subgroups that have kind of come out of that. So I've got one here on the South Coast. So then we've got that local community. Um, there are big kind of Charlotte Mason communities kind of around the country. Um, you know, you might not find there's anyone kind of really close to you, in which case you might use the, the, the whole, the, the national group um, as your source of encouragement and support. We quite often run picnics um, and things in different parts of the country for, for people to get together. Um, I run workshops here, you know, at, in my house um, and I do them online as well to, again, offer people opportunities to, to come and to listen to it and to see how it works. Um, you know, I, I do one for, for Charlotte Mason for primary where I actually give Charlotte Mason lessons. So you can be as a parent, you can sit and receive like a reading lesson and just see, see whether you like it, see what it feels like to be read something and then asked, tell me about what I just read. Because that's a really big effort to tell back what you've just heard. And the power of the Charlotte Mason method is in that telling back the brain processes required to actively listen. Isn't it so hard to listen? You're a really good listener, by the way, Elena, may I say. Thank you very to, much. To listen to things really well, to be able to then tell back requires that understanding of the vocabulary, requires the child's own brain to be summarizing, distilling, pulling out, fight, you know, interacting, chewing. Charlotte Mason has a lot of um, food metaphors. We're chewing the food to extract kind of the goodness from it. And then to tell back, you've got to actively use that vocabulary. Maybe you're going to simplify some of the words. Maybe you heard a word and you kind of think you know what it means. Like in a foreign language, you know, when, when you hear someone talking in a foreign language and you can only sort of parrot back a very simplified version, but you kind of have understood it. That's what our children are doing. But we're building their vocabulary by, by exposing them to our read aloud. And the intonation and the way that we read aloud helps them to understand even words that are new to them. It's interesting because I actually think that that, that approach is probably one of the most integral approaches to being able to pass exams. Because when my children were younger, we didn't do a lot of subject specific lessons, but we would take texts and then I would get them to summarize them and paraphrase mm -hmm. them and things like that. And as they're now going through their GCSEs, I've realized how many subjects use that in the exams not just english although english is is almost is rooted almost entirely in that but also if you're just able to take a, a textbook for, for what you know for want of a, an alternative and you're able to take a large amount of, informa of information and summarize that in your brain that's pretty much every subject sorted out apart from maybe maths <laughs> yeah yeah basically basically it is and so that's why this this method that we've been doing right from the start has built this strong foundation in this key skill of narrating back i did actually i found a youtube um video of some 16 year old who just got all nines in her gcs and she's like, here's how I got my, my, my raft of nines. I thought, okay, all right, this will be interesting. I'd love to hear because I want to know how you, as a 16-year-old student, have navigated the school system and succeeded. And do you know what she said? She said that when her dad was driving her to and from like her sports practice or whatever it was in the evening, she was telling him everything she'd learned that day. Oh, there we go. That's narration. That's what it is. 
telling someone else who's who's um, a, a good listener, who's properly listening and maybe asking not necessarily closed pointed questions, but kind of, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, that bit, I don't, can you explain that a bit more? I don't really understand that bit. Um, having that to bounce off, that's how she got her, her nines. And that really is the foundation for, for, for so much success at GCSE. Yeah, I could believe that. I, I, it's That's really interesting because I, I've seen that myself with my children is that the topics that we engage with as a family and have discussions about are the ones that they then they remember in sort of in their long term memory. So the Facebook community you mentioned was Charlotte Mason Conversations. Yes. And what about if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you? I know you'll be on our Facebook group, but are there any other places they can they can interact with you or find out about your workshops or your Bill Bryson of computer science or any of that stuff. <laughs> so, so I am the Charlotte Mason workshop. Um, and my website is dianaedwin.com. Um, so I'm on Instagram. I'm rubbish on Instagram, but I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook um, as the Charlotte Mason workshop. And uh, yeah, my website points you to all of my different hats that I wear. Fabulous. And we'll be putting those links in our Facebook group as well for anyone who's listening. And all of those books, which I'm afraid as listeners to the podcast, you won't have seen, but but Diana was holding up some very interesting looking books that I was tempted to make notes of as she was holding them up because they looked really cool. So I will make sure that all those links go in the in the Facebook group as well. So Diana, thank you so much for joining us today and talking us through uh, the Charlotte Mason approach and how it, it is you know uniquely possible to actually combine these two approaches and succeed in exams because I honestly was quite sceptical <laughs> because having gone through the Fair exams, enough. they're soul destroying. And so it's wonderful that there is that other option and whilst it may be you know a little bit more time consuming and a bit more expensive I think what you would end up with is a child that that is rooted in what they've learned rather than as you say regurgitating something then forgetting it the next day so thank you so much for joining us today it was lovely talking to you and to you Eleanor my pleasure thank you so much for joining us for today's home education matters podcast see you at the next one have a lovely day